Welcome to the Diamonds for Our Children podcast, a public humanities project and motherhood ministry. I'm your host, Katie Jo LaRiviere. Drawing on all aspects of what Pope St. John Paul II called the feminine genius, I gathered together the narratives, expressions, and expertise of mothers as a collective epistolary given freely as a gift to all children who might need the loving and secure presence of motherhood. This podcast is for my little ones, of course, but it's also for you, dear one, whomever and wherever you may be. If you need the love of a mother, join me every Monday. Each episode is a facet of the diamond of motherhood, and each contributes to a unified love that reflects light back onto the world. Let us fill our hearts up so that we can pour them out. Full disclosure, I have what you might call a peculiar interest in this question. Who am I? And it's not because I'm self-obsessed, I hope. It's more because I think reflecting on this question is one of the most important things we can do in our lives. You've heard me talk about this question from two different angles. But part of what makes this question so important to me is that it can be approached from so many perspectives and answered in so many different ways. And its answer is dynamic and ever-changing, even for the same individual throughout their life. As we've discussed already in the last two episodes, the question of who you or I might be is actually the second question of identity. That first question, what am I, what are you, is the other side to this coin. And the response to that first question is paradoxically stable. Its unchanging nature makes the dynamism of the second question, who am I, all the more interesting. And I've spent my spiritual and academic life seeking responses to it. Okay, okay, I know. I have a tendency to put off the concrete in favor of the theoretical. I just love talking about ideas. So in this episode, I want to share with you a few of the guiding questions that provide a foundation for this podcast and for the mission of my motherhood. But I want to talk about them in more concrete terms to give you a sense of what I actually think personally about these questions. So on this episode, my little ones ask the questions and I do the responding. The answers I offer here may help you understand my approach to motherhood, my worldview, and my mission. I've carefully considered my responses to these questions and they're a result of my life's experiences, my academic knowledge, my spiritual growth. Yet they can only offer a snapshot of where I am right now on this day at this time in my life. The answer to the question of who you are should change after all. As you learn and experience new things and as you move with intention and openness through the world, your reflections on this question will change. It is my great hope that your reflections lead you to align the responses to both foundational questions, what am I and who am I? through a gentle and peaceful process of becoming what you are. All right, go ahead. What does motherhood mean to you? For me, motherhood, 
like almost everything, has its theory and its application. I see this almost in a platonic sense, that is, there is a form of motherhood, motherhood in its perfection, which gives its absolute beauty to its many diverse expressions in practice. When I say I want to be a good mother, the good I'm referring to is this absolute form, this perfection. But I always say this knowing that in practice, I cannot perfectly express what it is to be a good mother. I try. I try very hard, and I fail every day because I am human. In drawing a distinction between perfection and reality, I'm trying to acknowledge two things. On the one hand, there is such a thing as perfection, in terms of absolutes, in terms of forms. Not just for motherhood, but anywhere where truth, goodness, and beauty meet. I believe in perfection, that it exists, because I believe in a God who is perfection itself. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing in order to be sufficient. And he came to us incarnate in Jesus through a woman he saw fit to be his mother. God housed his perfection in the body of a woman, and his choice to come into the world this way affirms the fundamental good of relationship, of family, of mother and child. That he chose this way to come into the world of humans tells us something about him. On the other hand, the distinction I've drawn puts our imperfect lived experience into stark relief. It can be depressing to think we'll never live up to the perfect absolute. Some people I respect very much have asked me how I can believe so much in perfection and why do I think it's even worth trying for. And as I talked about in the last episode of this podcast, isn't perfection unhealthy? Isn't perfectionism unhealthy, especially for those with anxiety? I've thought very carefully about these questions for several years. Parsing my response to them has been a major part of my growth over the last 10 years, especially since I became a mother. I've always struggled with anxiety and perfectionism, but I think these are different from a love of perfection. Perfectionism is an anxiety about oneself. It involves a relentless critical view of oneself as never being good enough, never accomplishing one's goals to the highest standard, and being vulnerable to others' criticism. It can take over your thoughts, and it can cause you to attempt to control others, which I admit I do sometimes, and it's hurtful. It is unhealthy because it places oneself in the center of the ideal. But we are not the ideal. And we must recognize that old cliche, God is God and I am not. I cannot be perfect because being perfect is impossible for sinners. It's the striving that matters. So I can love the fact that perfection exists, and I can love that perfection himself, who is my God, and I can strive to be like him. It's that attentiveness to perfection himself and the model he offers for our lives.
the fundamental act of perfection, the act of being God, is itself self-giving love. God is he who needs nothing, giving himself for our sake, beginning with the incarnation and coming to full completion on the cross. And so you see, perfection is not about being enough at all. It is rather about being a gift. A love of perfection, as opposed to perfectionism, is a love of the model of what and how to be. In its perfect form, then, motherhood is one way to fulfill our human likeness to perfection, being as giving. One model, or path, toward fulfilling this form is to embrace what Pope St. John Paul II calls the feminine genius. Here's a brief definition that I think is useful in everyday terms. The feminine genius is a way of being that encompasses two clear capacities. It's not that only women have these capacities, but that theologically, the feminine heart and body are especially made for these two things. The two capacities are, first, the fiat, which means the capacity to say yes to a cyclical pattern of receiving love and pouring it out in abundance. That is an active reception. The fiat is a mission. The second is the capacity to see the person in others. The feminine genius makes it possible to look into the soul of the person in front of you, to hear their cry for love and tender mercy, to see beyond what makes that person ugly, annoying, sinful, and needy. Motherhood combines these two capacities in the physical and spiritual acts of bringing forth life and nurturing it to its fullest potential. Of course, the feminine genius, and also motherhood, can be lived out by women regardless of whether they have biological children. Adoptive and foster mothers have this capacity. Women who suffer pregnancy loss have this capacity. Consecrated women and those who live a religious vocation may never have the experience of pregnancy or mothering babies or young children of their own, and yet they live out these two capacities in a true and necessary way every day. Teachers and nurses, social justice advocates and social workers, all who live out these two capacities embrace the feminine genius. Contrary to the messages we receive in our culture, motherhood is not an exclusive club, and being a good mother has many definitions and many expressions. Good mothers and their practices are as diverse as the humans on this earth, and each, when she exercises her motherhood through her feminine genius, reflects the beauty and the love of God, because while he is a unified and singular God, he is expressed in so many diverse ways. And so it should not surprise you that I consider my teaching a fulfillment of this spiritual motherhood. Whether caring for the poor, the hungry, the imprisoned, the young, the old, the homesick, those seeking knowledge, security, a sense of self-worth, or those seeking safety, forgiveness, and love, 
the mother accepts the mission. She has possession over herself, or at least she is working to. She knows her needs and maintains firmness in her boundaries. She gives unceasingly, though she does not let herself be abused. She does the hard work it takes to keep her cup full so that she can pour it out on those who need her. She sees the need before it is asked because she sees the person she cares for and their deepest core self. She loves through active reception of the mission, a mission which is love itself. How does the idea of motherhood shape your life, or perhaps your vision of yourself? When I'm doing it right, when I'm truly living the feminine genius, I feel that my motherhood is an act of spiritual and philosophical resistance to a world obsessed with politics and selfishness. When I am succeeding at motherhood, I affirm the magnanimity of the other the inherent dignity of the person in front of me, and I am free to give of myself without care over the cost. This is a joyful giving that is self-assured and confident in the peace the sacrifice will bring. It's a sacrifice that bears fruit in the other and creates mutual love. It's a sacrifice for their sake, which doesn't actually feel all that sacrificial. So as Bishop Robert Barron and John Paul II have both explained, this kind of true love is non-competitive. It's the paradoxical law of giving. The more you give, the more you receive. Rather than losing something of yourself when you give, you make a new creation. This is a disposition of abundance, not scarcity. As a result, Mothers provide a resistance to the political, social, economic, and philosophical ideas and practices that seek to destroy persons and, more insidiously, to use them. It is in this way that, in my mind, motherhood is political. It's not just that we vote as mothers or we try to make our societies better for our children. Of course we do these things and thereby participate in political systems. But it's more fundamental than that, I think. Motherhood is political because it is entangled with our notions of what it is to be human, our understanding of what we are and how we ought to treat each other. You know, our self-definition implies that word ought because by being, we require things of ourselves and others. The notion of ought is our concept of ethics, morality. We ought to act in certain ways. The right purpose of politics is to serve our sense of ethics. We make laws, ideally, that make doing the right thing easy. In January of this year, Jonathan Lee Walton, dean of the Wake Forest University's School of Divinity, explained this in an interview. He said, quote, One can't make moral claims that don't have political implications. Meaning that while sometimes we see political acts, the creation of certain laws or policies, as themselves moral or immoral, 
The root of the political action is actually already grounded in our sense of ethics, which determines how we think we can or should treat people. We make laws against hate speech, for example, because we recognize within our ethical systems that words have consequences and that we ought not injure the dignity of persons with our speech. When Walton said this in the interview, he was responding to a question about whether advocating for certain basic rights, such as being treated fairly by the law, regardless of one's race or class, has a particular political slant. Is it a Democratic or Republican thing to advocate for certain people in certain ways? And his response that moral claims have political implications was a way of saying something I can relate to deeply in my soul. We don't start by being political. That is, as Walton argued, rather than only seeing certain actions as politically motivated, we must search underneath for the moral argument being made in the political act. And significantly, we should not assume, and here I'm making a moral argument of my own, that when a person speaks, she is necessarily claiming a political side, but rather we should assume that she is expressing a moral idea. Holding politics at arm's length allows flexibility in thinking, civility and mercy in conversation, growth and learning. Most importantly, it holds space for a person to be fully a self, rather than simply occupying space within the mental containers we build for them. So politics serves ethics and not the other way around. Advocating for fair treatment under the law is promoting a moral standard first. Such a belief only becomes strange to us when we give enough voice to forces that attempt to stand against it, voices that say equal treatment is not necessary. But even when there are two opposing moral views, we remain on the ground of moral argument. The argument only becomes political when we create law or policy that denies or supports the moral standard. Thus, we cannot place our hope in political systems or political people to uphold moral standards, no matter how much their ideals may align with ours. Political action is not the cause, but the effect of our ethical standing, and we have given the job of moral reasoning to politicians, to political systems, and even to particular nations. And here, of course, I'm speaking from the perspective of the West, of the United States, all of this when it cannot be in their purview. These are, after all, human systems created in bias and created as a means to power. They were never able to do the job we have given them, at least in the United States. When we seek these things of each other before we seek to love each other, when we demand to understand each other's politics before we understand each other's personhood, we wallow in tribalism, which is based on a disposition of scarcity, not abundance. When we fail to see the fullness of personhood and dignity that each and every one possesses, we cannot fathom listening to their story or giving ourselves in love to that person 
we thereby become the enemy, not only to the other, but to our own origins, to our own true selves. The mother's mission of love is anathema to that which oppresses or uses the human person in this way, because motherhood is intimately wrapped up in valuing the person in front of you and in acting on the knowledge that their value is inherent to them and not earned by political affiliation, not earned by productivity, not earned by anything a person does or does not do. Dignity is inherent to a person's very being, and that's why persons must not be used as a means to an end or oppressed in any way. Any action which does so dehumanizes. So, despite the criticism I sometimes face, even from those very close to me, I am confident in my moral ground, which helps me to make political decisions that may not align perfectly with either political party or even with a certain standard of patriotism, but which I know are the most ethical choices available to me, given our oppressive, hypocritical, and hyper-individualistic political system. And to make these choices responsibly, I have to commit myself to learning for the rest of my life. The politics of my motherhood demand that people on every side, including myself, live up to who we say we are, admit when we fall short, and work hard to meet ourselves the standards we set for others. As a result, I do not consider myself apolitical. Everything is political, but rather extra political. I tune my heart to a song that is sung outside of, extra, the orchestrations of this world. It is the only way I can be me, which is a long way of saying with St. Therese of Lisieux, the world is my ship and not my home. Or put even more simply, my mission is love. That's it. Can I love by making this or that given choice? If so, then I try to do it. And if not, then I try not to do it. Love, it turns out, requires courage. As Brian Stevenson, lawyer, social justice activist, and author of the book Just Mercy recently explained in an interview, if you're going to advance justice, If you're going to be even a complete human being, sometimes it takes courage to love, to just be who you should be to the people you care about. My conception of motherhood shapes my life in that I love the perfection of God that motherhood is modeled upon. I really try to have the courage to align my actions to this ideal I try to follow the model of the feminine genius, to give my fiat to the mission of love, and to see each person in front of me with their full God-given dignity, no matter what. It shapes my vision of myself because I recognize that I often fail to live a worthy motherhood, but I know the value in persistently trying to live it. And My vision of motherhood shapes who I am in another way. I am a mother, but I am 
all of us are also children. And being a child actually can be so difficult. Children know intuitively that they are worthy of love and full acceptance. It's only through the evil of others, through their fears, their cravings for power, their dispositions of scarcity, that children learn anything contrary to what they first know about themselves. It's only by being used that they learn to use others. And so motherhood is a great responsibility to keep this evil at bay and also to apologize for when I take part in it, even unconsciously. So can I just say right now to you, my dear listener, my child, my friend, if you know me in real life, if I have hurt you, if I have treated you like less than you are, I am sorry. Part of what's so difficult about motherhood is knowing that you will fail this great responsibility. That you may hurt people and be unable to heal the wound you've caused. Nevertheless, though I may be unable to heal the pain I have caused, for my part, I am sorry. I also recognize that this discussion and perhaps this whole podcast may bring forward difficult memories or emotions that involve your own relationship with your mother or child. And know that I understand that this is tender. If you can, will you allow me to just hold some space for you right here, right now? Can we together acknowledge the wounds? And can I offer you a balm for them by affirming your value? You, you listening right now, you are worthy of love because you exist. Period. That's all you had to do. You are irreplaceable in this world. And that's all you had to do to be worthy of love. You simply need to exist. And I know it may seem impossible because perhaps we haven't actually met properly, but will you allow me to say that I love you? Let me be one person who says it to you today. I love you, dear one. How do your particular strengths show up in your motherhood? First, I think one of my strengths is my gosh dang determination. (laughs) I'm also a huge nerd and I'm not afraid to be it. Um, I have a strong sense of purpose, as I think you may begin to gather from this podcast so far. I believe in myself and I believe in you with so much confidence. It's the reason I can't let you be less than the best version of yourself. Second, I'm not very good at spontaneity, but when it comes to you, I can plan for fun. I genuinely have the most fun of my life when I create a surprise for you and it goes to plan. Witnessing your joy is the definition of happiness for me. Third, I do a lot of research to make sure I'm doing right by you, and I take pride in that. I'm an academic after all. I love to learn. 
Learning is another way I find joy, and if I can put that to use to improve our life together, that's a winning situation. Fourth, I'm quite clear about one particular truth. I quoted her earlier in this episode, but it's St. Therese of Lisieux who said, The world is thy ship and not thy home. The end of all things is not revealed in its fullness in this life. And I think that my confidence in this helps me to be at peace with growth, even while I strive for my ideals. Finally, it wasn't always like this. Many experiences and sustained attention to the experiences of others has taught me how to truly accept and embrace you as you are rather than strive to mold you into another version of me. Because of this, we communicate better. We have a clearer understanding of ourselves and of each other. And I think we love each other better. Now, of course, each of these strengths can be measured against my many failings. I am by no means perfect. It is hard for me to be vulnerable in front of you. and let alone an entire podcast audience. I have sensory sensitivities that increase my anxiety and a low tolerance for mess that is often overwhelmed. We talked about this last time, but anxiety and depression can make me difficult to understand. Communication can be difficult for me at times. I can seem distant or inattentive because I spend a lot of time in my head. It's my happy place just thinking. So it's difficult for me to stop doing that and to attend to practical things. One of those is also a result of my poor interoception, which means that even though I have very strong body awareness, I have a hard time perceiving sensations like when I'm hungry or when I need to take a deep breath. This can mean I get cranky because I haven't eaten enough or I don't realize I'm hungry And I have a habit of expecting immediate action from those around me. And maybe this is just a fancy way to say I lack patience. The list continues on and on. And as much as it shouldn't surprise me, this truth often does. We just never stop growing. Over and over, we want to think we know what we need to know. Right? I'm done learning. I've I've learned it all about myself. But... As your Oma says, wisdom is living a life of humility. And humility is knowing that you cannot know all. There it is again. God is God and I am not. And I also think I'm pretty good with self-reflection and recognizing these things about myself helps me to manage them. Finally, I think the strength I would say is most helpful in my motherhood is my ability to combine just the right amount of zen and focus to get us through crisis situations and difficult moments in family life. I hope this podcast ends up being part of that. What are some of the ways you survive, both as a person and as a mother? Most of the time, the things that are worth doing are difficult, such as the case with motherhood. Loving others is exhausting and sometimes painful. Its joy and sorrow is simultaneous. 
Our Lord is the author of this paradox, and he knows it well. And so sometimes, though we know joy through motherhood, we face circumstances and traumas through which we must simply survive. So what are some of the ways I survive? Honestly, when possible, I go to Holy Mass or visit the Blessed Sacrament, because like I said, our Lord is the author of the joy-suffering paradox. He's the source and the summit. Another way I survive is, honestly, I use my work to cope with difficult situations. In part, this is because I'm good at my work and I find joy in it, even if I'm suffering elsewhere in my life. Yet my work also provides me silence in a life full of noise. It encourages me to process my thoughts and put them in order. My academic work is philosophical and theological, which provides a frame for my research and also encourages me personally and spiritually. My teaching distracts me from some difficult circumstances, but it also offers a chance to do tangibly better each time I step into the classroom. Even if I have a tough day teaching, I know I can do better next time, and this is a great comfort to me. I also learn a lot from teaching, and learning is actually fun for me, as I've said before. Finally, though, my work is a prayer for me, or at least I really try to make it so. I become closer to God through the work that I do, which is part of the reason I love it so much, and it's encouragement to me when things are difficult. Another way I survive is with talk therapy, and we've talked about this in an episode previously, but I'm extremely privileged to have this option at my disposal, and I wish that we all did. We as a culture must work to destigmatize therapy and to make it accessible to everyone. Finally, singing and dancing are survival, and then so is chocolate. What do you most want to share with your children? What do I most want to share? I want to share everything. Now really, that's why I'm doing this project. If you're my biological child or my spiritual child, I want you to have some context for my motherhood. I want you to know the history and philosophy behind how I came to be this way. It is inevitable that things I say and do, my ways of being, will seep into you and your worldview. I want you to know this about me so that you'll know it about you. And if we've never met, I want you to take anything and everything you can get from what I share on this podcast. I want to map out one vision of love for you, something for you to hold on to when you need it. I don't have to know you to love you, so soak it in. It's okay if we disagree. I cannot be everyone's ideal mother, and I'm likely to say things you just can't abide with, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from each other. Episcopal Bishop Michael Curry has said that, quote, learning to live together in difference is called maturity, and I agree with him. I've said it once, and I'll say it again and again, you can learn so much from people with whom you disagree, and not only can you learn from them, you can also love them. One more thing I want to share with you is the community of people who have become the context of my motherhood. These are my friends, fellow scholars, and role models. 
Some of them are mothers themselves of their own biological children. Others of them are spiritual mothers. They're people who have mothered me and shown me what motherhood is. They have shown me that motherhood is a way of loving expressed not in one uniform way, but in many diverse ways, all of them good. They have shaped my knowledge, my choices, my concept of mothers. Learning about them is a way of learning about me and a way of learning about yourself. They are, finally, the voices I trust to mother you in my absence. The people who, like me, want to make a gift of themselves for your sake. Finally, because this is the ultimate goal of the podcast, how do you understand the relationship between motherhood and the concept of tender mercy? I recently heard Brian Stevenson give an interview in which he had this to say about mercy. He said, we all suffer from the absence of mercy. We all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. He went on to say that no one should be defined by the worst thing they've ever done. And I think these two ideas go together for Stevenson as they do for me, because we share this belief I discussed earlier, that each person is, above anything else, a person, created in the image and likeness of a God who is perfect giving. This is a God who, in his giving self, showed such tender mercy in our creation and in our salvation. He couldn't help but show tender mercy. That is his very being. It's because God is who he is and we belong to him that we need the things that he is. Mercy, justice, and unmerited grace. I think motherhood is one of the beautiful avenues we have on this earth for living a life devoted to tender mercy. Motherhood proposes the argument that tender mercy is worth it because it enables us to see, through giving oneself to one's children, that a perfect gift bears so much joy, even through sacrifice. Cultivate the heart of motherhood, which is to say, Work to see and care for the fully dignified person in front of you, whether that person is your own child, a friend, a student, a patient, a client, a stranger, a so-called enemy. Cultivate that love and you will live the fullness of your being, which is modeled on tender mercy itself. This, this is joy. That was a long podcast, Mom. All right, that's enough out of me for the day. But before we go, I want to let you know about this week's resources. There are three of them. The first is Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. That's his book that discusses his work as a lawyer for inmates on death row. It's an amazing story, a beautiful story, a heartbreaking story. But most of all, it's a necessary story if you're going to explore in any measure the idea of mercy. The second resource I want to point you toward is any poetry that you can get your hands on by Jay Janda, 
who was a Jesuit priest who self-published much of his work. And that means that it's not in print. It's not really in circulation. But if you can get your hands on it, please do it. Um, Later in the season, I will read a poem of his and um, I will have a guest on the show who also uh, loves Jay Janda and has a has a poem to read for you from that as well. But if in the meantime you can get some um, of his poetry and you know take a deep dive, I highly highly recommend. Our third and final resource for this week is Bishop Robert Barron's homily called "Your Life Is Not About You," and it's about what it means to be a saint. It's a beautiful, perfect, amazing little homily of like 13 minutes. Um, And if it has the same effect on you that it had on me, it will change your outlook. So I highly recommend that. And of course, I will put a link to it in the show notes at diamondsforourchildren.com. Thank you so much for spending time with me this week. You are a beloved child, and today, for just a few moments, you chose to be with me. I'm so honored by that. I hope you can feel how much you are loved. If you know someone who could benefit by spending time with us, will you invite them to the Diamonds for Our Children community? Help them find our website at diamondsforourchildren.com. Send them a link to the show on Spotify, Apple, or any podcast platform or search for Diamonds for Our Children on Patreon. Patreon members are eligible for lots of good things, especially the opportunity to help me turn this mama love into tangible giving in our communities. You can also share what the show means to you by reviewing the podcast on the free Apple Podcast app. Rating and reviewing helps others to find our community and our love. And who knows, your review might just be featured on the doc website. You can also get in touch with me via email at diamondsforourchildren at gmail.com to ask questions or share your thoughts with me. I can't wait to be with you again next week. Together, we create facets of a unified love that reflect light back onto the world.